0: Welcome everybody. Is there virtue in self-sacrifice? Of course there is, but it is not a virtue that is held in the highest esteem in our own day, many would argue. Sacrifice yourself for other people or for a noble cause. Why would I do that? That would get myself into trouble. That's what a lot of people think. But maybe we all need to reflect more on where we would be were it not for the self-sacrifice exhibited throughout history when men go to war. Beyond that, why is it that men fight to the death for higher causes than their own lives, and why do some fight even when the battle seems to be a lost cause? And if you're wondering why I highlight men, it's because, as my next guest points out, war is at root a masculine endeavor, and that's a very important issue to examine as well. So we're going to talk about this all today with author Michael Walsh, former classical music critic and foreign correspondent for Time Magazine, recipient of the 2004 American Book Awards Prize for Fiction, and author of the latest book that he's written called Last Stands. Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. So good to have you here, Michael. How are you doing?
1: I'm great, Janet. Thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you for being here. I think this is interesting to start with this because you say you grew up with heroism because of your dad. Your dad was a Marine and also a Korean War veteran. How did your life looking up to your dad kind of help inspire you to write this book?
1: Uh, it took a long time. I mean, my father was in Korea at the Chosen Reservoir 70 years ago this week. Wow. I'm 71, so you, obviously he was fighting for his life when I was an infant. <laughs> uh, then he came home and had another son and three daughters, so our family would not literally have not been here had he not fought so hard and survived that uh Famous military last stand, Marine Corps history last stand. Um, I should say that he never talked about it. I mean, when you grow up in a Marine household, you're Marines first, yeah. basically. Yeah, we were we were we were Marine kids first, Irish kids, sec- Catholic kids second, and Irish kids third. Maybe Catholic kids first, Marine kids second. It went back and forth. Right. Uh, but he didn't start talking about it until relatively recently. And so, when I started to conceived this book in the summer of 2018, I realized, having gone through these various battles, such as Thermopylae, where the Greeks stopped the Parisians, uh, Custer's last stand, obviously, lesser-known last stands, such as the sack of Rome in 1527, I realized I had a survivor of a last stand in my own family, so I had a chance to spend a few hours with my dad interviewing him about his personal reminiscences of the night of November 27th and 28th when the Chinese attacked. And uh, that's how the book came to be.
0: Yeah. And it's such an interesting battle, the Chosen Reservoir, because there are a lot of people nowadays who probably don't know much about it. But that truly was a a formidable battle because you had all of these troops. They were surrounded by the Chinese. It looked like it was all over. And this was one of the greatest escapes. Can you tell people a little bit about not only that particular battle, that last stand that looked rather hopeless, but also, you know, how your dad kind of looks at it now looking back on it?
1: Uh, yeah, I'll well, ask two quite different questions, as you'll see from my answer. Number one is the Marines had pushed all the way to the Chinese border in uh, around Thanksgiving of 1950. Uh, MacArthur, General MacArthur was in command of the overall UN force in South Korea uh, after they had been invaded by the North Koreans. So as the Marines pushed forward, MacArthur was fairly confident the Chinese would not enter the war as the Marines approached their border. Well, that turned out to be misplaced confidence. And on the night of November 27th, 100,000 Chinese came out of the hills just north of the Marine and U.S. Army positions near the Chosen Reservoir. That body of water was a man-made reservoir, and we know it by its Japanese name because, of course, the Japanese had occupied Korea during the Second World War, and the name was still on the maps that everyone was using. Uh, It was a very small Marine force. In fact, the Marines aren't very big in the first place, and they were almost about to be eliminated uh, from the U.S. military, At the time, the Korean War began, and since many of the Marines were in the Pacific area as it was, they were uh, pulled together in Japan and then sent over to the Pusan perimeter in Southeast South Korea to land and to start the fighting. So the Marines woke up to the sounds of uh, gongs and fireworks, which is the way the Chinese fight, and suddenly all these poorly equipped Chinese troops were rushing down the hills at them. It was very similar to the Battle of Stalingrad, if you've ever seen the movie Enemy at the Gate, in which the Chinese didn't have enough weapons to go around. So an unarmed Chinese soldier would follow an armed Chinese soldier. When the first guy got killed, the second guy picked up his rifle and continued. <laughs> uh, the Marines regrouped, uh, fought back, uh, pulled themselves together, and then marched however many miles, 50, 60, 80 miles, back to the American United Nations lines and, and to the uh, seaport um, on the east coast of Korea and survived. They, had they lost, the entire United States Marine Corps would have been wiped out by the Chinese, and that would have been the end of it. So it was a very important last stand. Uh, Your second question was about my father. Did you ask me that again? Yes.
0: I'm I'm just curious how your father reflects back on it, because sometimes the testimony of the soldiers who were there is different than the historian's account.
1: Yes. Well, I would say this is something that will come as a surprise, perhaps, to our civilian readers and listeners, but uh, they don't think about it very much. Obviously, when you're in the middle of it, you're concentrating on, survival and the way you do that and i think this is the most important lesson uh of the battle from someone who survived it actually my father uh you concentrate on your training and you concentrate on what they call doing your work they refer to it as work Mm -hmm. it's a job Mm -hmm. and your job is to stay alive and kill as many of the other guys as you possibly can while staying alive and that's really how it how it uh plays in their minds i asked him were you frightened and he looked at me like that was the oddest possible question to ask he said (laughs) We went to work, and that's what they did.
0: Wow. And that's so interesting because when people are outside the experience of war and looking in, they may talk about things like duty and honor and courage, and yet that's not necessarily the way these soldiers see themselves. Is that kind of a common thing that you found when you were doing the research on this book, that those men who went to war and fought so valiantly and sometimes were fighting these battles that seemed to have been lost, they were thinking more like your dad than they were thinking about self-sacrifice and courage?
1: Well, I you know, I can't ask them because they're all dead now, right, uh, sure uh, sure. basically, but I would say yes, I don't think the warrior has changed very much i I mentioned at the beginning of the book a quote from the French military officer of the nineteenth century, Armand Dupic, who mm-hmm. says the human heart is the starting place when considering war, and, and the human animal doesn't change. This has been a longstanding point of mine in my earlier books, The Devil's Pleasure Palace and The Fiery Angel, which are cultural studies of Western civilization. Uh, I don't believe the ancient Romans are any different than we are. They may have slightly different social attitudes, uh, in many ways better social attitudes, I would say, having become a student of Roman history. But people don't change. And one of the fallacies of the modern age is to assume that men can be women and women can be men. And (laughs) This book has as its subtext the positive value of toxic masculinity, to use the term the feminists... Used to disparage what we would just call masculinity.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one thing that the angle that you took there really resonated with me because you're just speaking so much truth here. When you're talking about not only war being a natural state of man, which we can see throughout the course of human history, but that this really is a masculine thing, no matter what the feminists say about women needing to be in combat. If you're a woman and you're reading this book, you're going to understand exactly what Michael Walsh is saying. We're going to go to a very quick break. We'll come back talking about Last Stands, why men fight when all is lost. Stay with us on Janet Meffer Today. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty Health Share is a non-profit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free heartbeats for moms in crisis in the USA. When a mother chooses life, preborn centers are there to help with the baby's needs, counseling, and so much more free of charge. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support Preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855 8-5- 402 54022229 all gifts are tax deductible that's 855402 baby or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
2: you're listening to Janet Mefford today and now here's Janet.
0: We are back on Janet Meffer today. Thank you for being with us. Michael Walsh is here, great writer. His latest book is called Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. And I'm, I'm curious, we were talking a little bit about your dad's experience as a Korean War veteran and the Chosen Reservoir Battle and some of these great battles in history are what you cover in this book. But more specifically, when we're talking about war as being a masculine thing and being something that has always been present in the course of human history, can you talk about this, really, the specificity of the masculine angle of war, that it really is not something that feminine, the feminine can really partake in, despite what the feminists would say. Well, talk about that a little bit, because I, th- I find that very interesting and very true.
1: Well, let me make a distinction. I, I, I think women should uh, not be in combat. I think women in the military is fine, but not on the front lines. And I think that for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, the first of which is the physical disparity between men and women. Uh, But more importantly is the physical and physiological function of men and women. Uh, Men are the sowers of life, but women are the breeders of it, and women are the vessels by which it is delivered. A woman's function is to create and nurture life, and a man's function in many ways is to kill it and destroy it. (laughs) Uh, I think it goes against essential feminine nature to turn a woman into a man. That ought to be self-evident, but in this crazy period in which we're living, it somehow is not.
0: Uh,
1: I don't think women make particularly good killers. No. Have there been some throughout history? Yes. Uh, Is it something that they are naturally attracted to? No. But anyone who's raised children, little boys and little girls, know, and as they sometimes write into the New York Times in panic that their little girl wants to play with dolls and <laughs> their little boy wants to behead them. Uh, <laughs> that, that's the way, that's the difference between boys and girls in continues throughout their adult lives as well.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, and a lot has been made during some of these discussions that have been fought on Capitol Hill about the role of women in the military, about this bond that men have on the battlefield. You know, how does that play into the self-sacrifice and, and why men will continue to fight wars, even if it does look like the battle is lost?
1: Yeah, well, I think, first of all, to the answer second question, you, you, you don't really have any choice. I mean, what, what happened, for example, at the Romans at Cannae is the greatest Roman army ever assembled, and that's saying something, uh, under the Roman Republic, including the Roman Empire, but mm-hmm. certainly the, the largest, was utterly annihilated by Hannibal at the, at, at the Battle of Cannae. And the, the men were, they died because they were outmaneuvered in a famous military stratagem called the double envelopment. And they literally had nowhere to go. They were like, uh, people you know, packed in a stadium, and suddenly something happens, and they they panic and shove and push. These men didn't panic, but they were so enveloped by the Carthaginians and their allies that they could barely get their swords out of their scabbards. Uh, they just had to fight to the end, <laughs> and they did. And famously, Tacitus, the historian, tells us that, uh, or is it Livy? I've forgotten now. Uh, tells us that one of the Roman soldiers was found dead but he had the nose and the ears of his opponent in his mouth. He couldn't reach his weapons, but he was still able to fight. Uh, right right on to the end. Oh my, um, wow. So give me your first question again. Now, these are get very complicated, I know.
0: Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the fact that you have men on the battlefield who have a bond, for example, that, yes. it, you know, the bond that these troops will have no matter when the battle took place, how much does that play into the willingness? And, and you know, understanding what you said, like your comment from your dad, that I was just doing my job. But what does that bond right. do to men when they're on the battlefield? In terms well, of sacrifice
1: it's literally a uh, uh, part of the of the act of warfare, so I'll go back to the Romans again in the in the legions which had developed out of the Greek phalanxes were much more flexible uh, and, and manipulable in fact the some of the units were called maniples. Uh, you had a shield on your left hand and a short sword called the gladius in your right hand. The word gladiator comes from that sword it was a s- short Spanish sword that was. Uh, a a thrusting, stabbing sword, not a slashing sword. You didn't fight a sword fight with it. You just stuck it in the guy's belly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were always fighting aggressively to your right, so you were protecting your buddy to your right, who had his shield up and was fighting to his right, Mm -hmm. so that every man was in effect both on offense and on defense for his buddy. And the Roman legions were extremely well-disciplined. Uh, And pretty soon that bond between that soldier, to your right, became the most important bond in the world at that moment, as it literally was. And I think soldiers from that period on uh, understand that and realize they have to protect their buddy because their buddy is protecting him. No one else is in that foxhole with them.
0: Yeah. That's right. what well, one of the most famous last stands, and I'm saying this here in Texas, obviously would be the Alamo. then that's one that you yeah. cover in your book. That's an interesting one though. you remember the Alamo and yet all the guys died. So you know it's a little different than some of the battles that we we talk about in history, but what do you take away from that particular last stand? The
1: Alamo is really a tricky one, as I say in the book, is it is, it, 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 it is in a sense, the most politically correct last stand that America celebrates, especially looking at it now through the wrong end of the telescope. Uh, The Texians, as they were called, were fighting for independence from Mexico, and they were in Mexican territory, oddly enough, at the mission of the Mexicans, because the Mexicans couldn't protect themselves from Comanche Indian attacks, so they opened it up to the Anglo settlers from the south and the central, Tennessee, for example, obviously, David Crockett, uh, from Louisiana. Uh, and so as the Americans came in, the Mexicans realized they were losing control of their own territory. And that's when Santa Ana, who was then president of Mexico, in addition to being their generalissimo, uh, decided to root them out. And the Texians in in the Alamo decided they didn't want to be rooted out, and you know Texas history better than I do, but they were all working with Austin and, and some of the other uh, uh, military figures in, in Texas at the time, and they stood their ground until the end. They they weren't all killed, actually, in the battle. After the Mexicans swarmed the Alamo, they were put to death. So uh, some of the women and, and uh, non-combatants were allowed to go, but the rest of them were all slaughtered. And... Uh, it's it's an incredible stand against the overwhelming odds And it certainly changed the course of American history. So that's why we still celebrate the Alamo today.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, it's interesting to me, though, when you're talking about concepts like heroism is about masculinity and some of this stuff is very politically incorrect for our own times. What does the rising tide of feminism and maybe the advancement of beta males in the West say about our present ability to win any future wars that could be on the horizon? Because if you're insulting masculinity the way it's become so fascinating. Fashionable to do in the last decade or so. How in the world are you gonna are you gonna handle it? I mean, if you do have, God forbid, some big war with China or Iran or who knows who, what what's going to happen to us?
1: We're going to lose. Simple.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the end of that. That's the end of the answer. You're going to lose. You cannot win uh, with without men in your army. No. Uh, I'll give you an example of the difference between men and women. I'm thinking about this actually for another project. Uh, Again, in early Roman, very early Roman history, 700 BC, the Romans have no women. They're all men. They're descendants of, according to legend, uh, of Aeneas and the Trojans who had fled Troy after the conquest of Troy by the Greeks. Uh, So they need women, obviously, if if Rome is to last more than one generation. And they decide that the neighboring tribe of the Sabines would be just ideal. So they invite all the Sabines over men and women, and at a prearranged signal from Romulus, another mythical founder of Rome, uh, the men grab all the women and carry them off. This is a famous episode called the Rape of the Sabines, or uh, more accurately, the Abduction of the Sabine women. Uh, And then they kick all the Sabine men out of Rome and they keep the women. And so time passes, the Sabines regroup and reorganize, and they come back and attack Rome to demand their women back. And you know what happens? Hmm. The women say, "We don't want to go back. <laughs> we like these guys. Wow. They're big. They're strong. They're our husbands. They're <laughs> the fathers of our children. <laughs> Why don't you losers just nap off?"
0: <laughs> men, li- women like masculine men. In the end, For that, well,
1: don't blame me. Blame, blame Libby. But, uh, <laughs> that, that is the story of the Sabine. Women that they go instinctively with the man who is going to protect them and shelter their children. And that's why you can't have feminists and soy boys protecting you because they won't
0: well and that's the thing and and when you're looking at this whole concept of fighting no matter what it kind of rings a little bit with me because there are a lot of people right now in the united states who feel like they're fighting for an america that uh, a good number of people in america want to try to destroy or take away Uh, how do you apply what you're doing here with the thesis of your book to our own day you know in a macro sense
1: well, I'm appealing to real men to step up. I mean, this is, not, this is a book for, for, for men yep. uh, uh, and the women who love real men.
0: Yep.
1: Uh, this is not a book for the feminists. This is not a book for uh, the gender-confused—this uh, <laughs> is not a book for people who use the word gender at all, except in terms of grammar. Good. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a callback to old-fashioned virtues and either you'll like it or you won't. And if you don't like it, you can lump it because it's about time somebody (laughs) stepped up and said these things.
0: Well said. I like that. You know, don't apologize because this really, and you're right in saying what you said because it's so important for Americans to remember some of these important battles throughout human history and really the centrality of self-sacrifice and how important it is for us to value the masculine, especially when it comes to propping up and maintaining civilization. Again, the name of the book is Last Sacrifice stands why men fight when all is lost a terrific read by michael walsh michael so good to have you here thank you so much for being with us thank you you bet we'll be back on janet Meffer today after this
2: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome back. Would it bother you if somebody came forward and gave $93 million to a number of key Christian schools, seminaries, colleges, and organizations to get them to reimagine church? Would that bother you at all as a Christian? Well, it happened. It happened. And I want to talk about this. This actually occurred and was announced a little while back, but I haven't had a chance to get to it. And it it is important enough for me to get to it. So I'm going to do it today. This is via the Christian Post just recently. In an effort to help various Christian ministries adapt to the changing culture, including technology issues and membership decline, the Indiana-based Lilly Endowment has given $93 million in grants to 92 Christian organizations. This is through its thriving congregations initiative. I just don't even like the sound of that. The communications director for the Lilly Endowment said the grants came as a way to help ministries handle the rapidly changing contexts in which congregations exist. And apparently this was a competitive initiative, meaning that the 92 grantees were all responding to the request for proposals. So it wasn't like the Lilly Endowment sat back and chose people out of a hat. These These people came to the Lilly Endowment and said, give me money. We want money. Now, who are some of these? I'm not going to read all 92. A lot of liberal organizations that shouldn't shock you at all in churches and denominations. You had the Children's Defense Fund, super far left. The ELCA, you know, Dying on the Vine, Liberal Mainline Denomination, Fuller Theological Seminary. But some of the other organizations on this list were a little bit more troubling. You had Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. You had Trinity International University in Deerfield. You have Wheaton College. And you have Redeemer City to City. Now, I'm going to focus in particular on Redeemer City to City. Why? This is the church planting organization that was founded by Tim Keller, who also is co-founder of the Gospel Coalition and has had, in my opinion, an outsized influence in destroying the PCA from within. But that's a whole other show. <laughs> you can go back in my archives and listen to those shows. So he is an extremely important figure within evangelicalism. And I think more and more over the past five, six, seven years, people have exposed him for the liberal that he is. I don't really care what his protestations are about not being totally liberal. I, I can see what he's done. So I don't really care what your doctrinal statement says. I can see what you've done in the PCA. I can see how you've gotten behind the Sam Albury, you know, share your kids with the gays audit. And I remember that whole thing, uh, the living out audit where you were trying to do a, a biblical stance at these churches and figure out if they were biblical on the issue of sharing their children with homosexuals. So uh, that that's all in view. Uh, plus the fact that Tim Keller was re- recently outed as a registered Democrat And he said, oh, it's just strategic. It's strategic. I just want to make sure that I can get the best Democrat of all because only Democrats will ever be elected. Well, right. Only Democrats will ever be elected if you don't register for the other party. If everybody registers for one party, yes, you're going to get whoever that party puts forward. I don't buy it. At any rate, I want to talk about Redeemer City to City. And I want to say before I get into that that the Lilly Endowment, in giving $93 million to all of these Christian organizations, is doing something that I find a little bit weird. Because why would the Lilly Endowment care about the church? Why would the Lilly Endowment care about rapidly changing contexts, blah, blah, blah? Why would they want to spend so much money to help Christian organizations, not only those that are very far left already, and in my opinion, gone, But those who are, you know, still kind of having a good sort of reputation among conservative evangelicals. Now, Redeemer City to City is a nonprofit organization. It describes itself as prayerfully recruiting, training, coaching and resourcing leaders who cultivate gospel movements in global cities, primarily through church planting. Again, headed up by Tim Keller. And I went back to a speech that he gave at the Lausanne Congress on world evangelization in Cape Town back in 2010. I want you to listen to his philosophy on church planting, because a lot of people have pointed out that with Redeemer City to City, unlike his involvement at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, from which he's now retired in New York City, this thing is not about planting PCA churches which you think would be his deal because that was the denomination in which he was such a king and such a superstar. That's not what he's into now. So let's listen to a little bit of what Tim Keller said about 10 years ago about reaching cities. This is cut one.
2: The differences between America and urban America are enormous. And yet it's typical in most, I think, parts of the the world for Christianity to be forged in uh, the non-urban parts of the country And so there's a way of speaking, a way of communicating, a way of living together, a way of organizing the church uh, that fits perfectly that part of the world, uh, that part of the country, and then what typically happens is people just pick those churches up and set them down in the middle of cities, a completely different kind of context, an urban context, and they don't seem to be effective, and everybody says, what's wrong? It must be those awful city dwellers, they just don't love Jesus, when actually it's because we haven't created contextual churches.
0: Okay, nobody else in any church outside of New York City or any urban environment has different cultures. I mean, I get out a little bit more. There are a lot of churches that have different cultures and people from different backgrounds. It's kind of setting up the city church as the ultimate church, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So what do contextualized city churches have to be? Cut to.
2: Churches that are contextualized for the city have to be extremely culturally sensitive. And here's why. A culture. Our culture is largely invisible to us. So many of the, way, of the, way, of the ways in which we act and think are, are really uh, unique to us culturally, and they're kind of invisible to us. And therefore, when you start a church in a more homogeneously uh, uh, monocultural place, people come together and they communicate with each other and they talk with each other they plan events, they make decisions, and and nobody even sits around and says how should we do that because everyone in that culture does it in a certain way automatically. When you go into cities, you are going to be uniting people from different cultures in the same church. You can't reach cities, you can't reach center cities unless you're bringing people together uh, from different cultures.
0: All right, you're bringing together different cultures, correct, but that's always been the case in Christendom in various locations at various times. You're bringing together people who are from different backgrounds or different races, different ethnicities, but so what? That's true in all kinds of places around the world. The city doesn't become magically different than any other place in the world just because you have different cultures. It's the same gospel, the same savior, because we all have the same problem, which is sin. And if you're doing your job as a Bible-focused Pastor, you're not going to be talking so much about contextualization as much as you're going to be talking about Jesus Christ. And I don't hear him talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about contextualization. That's what it's about. Of course, he says the different cultures can lead to problems. This is Cut3.
2: And as a result, there's going to be uh, tension. Because all kinds of things, that that, uh, how you make a decision, and how you even organize events, and how you communicate, and how you preach and how you do discipleship, and how you do pastoral care are, uh, are different in different cultures, and in order to create a multicultural church, uh, a church committed to combining the, the various people of the city, the d- different cultures in one church, it's gonna create a, it's gonna take a lot of ingenuity, it's gonna take a lot of creativity, but most of all, it's gonna take a lot of discussion, and it'll probably take a lot of debating. Uh, let me put it this way. A, an urban church has to expect constant complaints of racial and cultural insensitivity. It has to expect them, it has to be patient with them, and it has to expect them never to really go away. Uh, if you have a multicultural church, very often when you're forming it, you're very excited and you get everybody together and then there's a lot of fights and then you get through them and you say, now we're, we're one people and everything is fine and five years later, six years later, seven years later, you're still having regularly disagreements, misunderstandings, charges of, uh, of uh, racial or cultural insensitivity, and they will never go away if you are a church that is committed to being an interracial, inter-multicultural church, and churches in the city almost always have to be that, and therefore you say, that's the price we pay to do something the gospel wants us to do
0: the gospel wants us to do. Isn't it what God wants us to do? And by the way, why in the world would you expect constant complaints and just say it's never going to go away? People are going to complain about race and cultural insensitivity. It's never going to go away. Well, it's never going to go away if you expect that it should never go away. If you're doing your job as a pastor, you will teach your people that we are one in Christ Jesus. Knock off your complaining. Isn't that something the apostle Paul would have said? I think so. Have you read Galatians chapter two, (laughs) how he dealt with Peter and the issue with the Judaizers, I don't think Paul would put up with a lot of racial complaints. Not for long anyway. We're gonna come back right after this with the reimagined church here on Janet Meffer today. If you could provide God's word to a Bibleist believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word.
3: Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible.
0: For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMafford.com.
3: Dan Steiner here with Freeborn Ministries, and this is my personal invitation for you to join my wife, Valerie, and I on December 13th for Celebrate Life, a live Christmas online benefit for unborn children. Many of you have supported and saved the lives of pre-born babies through this radio session. This is an opportunity, friend, for you to see a pre-born center in action, for you to see moms and babies who have chosen life to meet some of the directors. We're gonna have Matthew West to hear Christmas music from Matthew. An opportunity for you to do a watch party in your home, bring your friends together and celebrate life that has been saved as a result of your generosity. And friends, on this broadcast, we're going to have a live ultrasound as well for you to see, like many of you have supported. So please join us on December 13th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time at Preborn.com. Preborn.com on December 13th for Celebrate Life, a live Christmas online benefit for preborn babies.
2: You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet.
0: Well, for some interesting reason, the Lilly Endowment has made grants to 92 Christian organizations, some of them not really worthy of the word Christian in them, but it's called the Thriving Congregations Initiative. Why in the world the Lilly Endowment wants to reimagine the church is beyond my capability of understanding until you realize that they are actually a donor partner of Soros's Open Society uh, Institute. So you got Soros money coming into the church. Isn't that fabulous? Yes, they're going into the mainline and the far-left organizations, but they're also going into some of the more mainstream evangelical entities like Wheaton College and Trinity International University, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and also Redeemer City to City, Tim Keller's group, this church planting organization that isn't all about planting PCA churches, which is the denomination that he served for years as pastor, former pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's part of the reimagining church efforts here, folks. I think you should know that because of the outsized influence of the Gospel Coalition. You need to know about this. And I'm playing some of these cuts from 2010 at the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization at which Tim Keller spoke, talking a little bit about his view on church planning and reaching cities, because I think this tells you more than anything else about reimagining church. I hate anything with re in front of it anymore. (laughs) Revoice, rethink, redo. I'm getting really sick of that. Anytime somebody puts re in front of something and puts it in the context of... Changing the church. I always have my antenna up. So let's go back to what he has to say. This one is really weird in my mind. He's talking about the role of the church in helping people succeed in their jobs. This is cut four.
2: Work is more important to people in cities in general than it is elsewhere. People go to cities very often to get work, to be in work, or to be in their careers. Uh, and yet, most churches really don't give uh, people in secular, what we call secular vocations, much guidance for how they're supposed to uh, conduct them. We have a tendency in churches to disciple people by bringing them more and more out of their jobs into the church, and if they're really, really, really dynamic disciples, they'll leave their, ch- their jobs and go into ministry. For example, I'll give you one example. At Redeemer, my church in New York City, some years ago we, we established something called the Entrepreneurship Forum. Uh, And it was largely due to the fact that people noticed that when uh, folks in our church sometimes rose up through the ranks, became staff members, became ministers of the church, sometimes we gave them money to go off and start their own churches. And somebody says, what about the rest of us? What about the 99% of us that uh, aren't ministers? So we started the entrepreneurship forum, and the entrepreneurship forum is several more successful uh, entrepreneurs put money into a a fund, and then we have a business plan competition for Christians. And uh, we, we ask people to give a business plan Uh, uh, for a for-profit, a non-profit and an arts initiative and every year we give startup money to help people get a for-profit started or a non-profit started which usually helps the poor or an arts initiative started and the business model has to show gospel thinking, has to show Christian thinking in conceiving of this new business or this new initiative and then we give seed money to it. What's that? That's in a sense church planting for everybody else who's not actually a church planter. For For all the other Christians in your church who are lay people. You've got to lift them up and affirm them in their secular vocations.
0: What is this? Oh, it's just like the early church. Do you remember when they had during the, you know, if you read the book of Acts, you'll read about the tent making for profits that the early church established and they had a business competition and Paul, who was a tent maker and a bunch of other guys were tent makers and involved in the arts and involved in uh, feeding the poor. They all came together and they had a business competition, a little red section of the book of Acts, but they had a business competition and they said, let's pool our money here in the early church in between getting persecuted and let's have a business competition and award grants to people to affirm them because they are planting the church with their arts initiatives and their tent making for profits in the same way that we as the apostles are planting churches Yeah, you know it's acts 48 that's where you can read about it oh wait a minute that's not in the bible this is what is going on in the reimagining church context we're going to come up with all kinds of well, i mean this is basically a grant awarding corporate charity this doesn't sound like a church. And granted, this was something he was talking about 10 years ago, but that's not the mission of the church. I'm not saying that you shouldn't affirm people in their jobs, but since when did the church become a a grant distribution organization for people to set up not-for-profits or for... I'm just shaking my head. And you wonder why we don't see revival, because we're focused on the social issues, social issues all the time with these folks. Now, I want you to listen to this. Uh, Caring for the poor, this was something else that Tim Keller discussed, this is Cut Five.
2: Along with intense evangelism, your church needs to be famous for its care for the poor. If the city sees you only evangelizing and growing that way, they will assume you're just out for power and money because you're just trying to increase your tribe. But if the city sees you caring about the poor, caring about issues of justice in the city, then they will say, well, maybe these people really do Maybe they really are characterized by Jesus' love. You have to be famous for your uh, love for the city. What you really, a good urban church is a church in which the neighbors around look at at that church and they say, I don't agree with many of the things they teach. In fact, some of the things they teach offend me, but I don't know what this city would do without that church.
0: Uh, uh, Where do you begin with this? You know, I was thinking about the book of Jonah. And when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to do social issues and social justice, oh no, he didn't. He said, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. That's what he said. And God himself said in that book, should I not be concerned with that great city? God didn't say, go and be famous in caring for the poor, Jonah. And then even though they don't like your teachings and they don't care for me and they don't care for my word, at least they'll see us being famous for caring for the poor. And then they will do what, Tim Keller? They will immediately fall on their faces before a holy God and repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ and begin to act like disciples of Jesus. Again, we're back to this whole social justice garbage. Yes, we should care for the poor. I'm not at all negating that, but the emphasis is all on social issues. This is just like the old liberal mainline. This is exactly where evangelicalism is headed. It's heading there as quickly as possible toward the cliff. And when it finally goes over the edge, they can thank the Lily Endowment for giving them ninety. Three million bucks. At least they got money caring for the poor. Hey, can you give us a grant? And what about this city-reaching movement? One more cut from Tim Keller. This is cut six.
2: To me, a city-reaching movement is when the body of Christ is growing faster than the population of the whole uh, of the the city. So when the number of Christians is going from one percent to three percent to five percent to ten percent of the population over ten or twenty years, now you've got a movement. You don't just have a few churches planting churches. You got a movement. Well, what creates a movement? Number one, what creates a movement is five or six church planting movements in different denominations or traditions. I I know I'm gonna sound facetious here. I'm a Presbyterian and I like being a Presbyterian. I enjoy my Presbyterian heritage and my Presbyterian distinctives. For reasons that escape me, not every person in New York City who wants to become a Christian wants to be a Presbyterian. Uh, I'm still doing the research on it. I haven't found out the reasons for it. I do know that Pentecostals and Anglicans and Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians tend to reach different kinds of people. And in different sorts of, if I'm caring about increasing my tribe and not really caring about reaching the whole city for Christ, then all that matters is I I plant Presbyterian churches. But it's my job, if I love the city, to make sure that church planting movements are going on not only in my own denomination, but to help them get going in the other ones.
0: That's quite amazing to me. PCA pastor, involved in the PCA, deeply involved in turning it in a more progressive direction, a more pro-LGBT direction. And now he wants to go out and have a city planting movement, church planting movement in the city and let's get all the denominations. So we're going to plant churches of every denomination. Look, there are Christians in various denominations, but that's just weird because this is more like a business plan than it is anything else. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned this at the time, but the church that was founded by Pastor Tim Keller, Redeemer Presbyterian, as was reported back a couple of months ago, August, I think it was, spent $30 million in an all-cash deal to buy a building on the Upper East Side of Manhattan to house a new campus of its family of churches. Well, no wonder they need money from the Lilly Endowment. How in the world are they going to afford all this? I mean, that's Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I don't know how fungible the dollars were. And if the dollars flowed there, maybe not at all. But that's a lot of money. That's an awful lot of money for the Upper East Side. What, they need more donors. I mean, that's where the money is in Manhattan. If those people haven't all moved out of Manhattan by now because of the insanity of Cuomo and de Blasio during the pandemic. My point is this. My point is this. Pay attention to what is going on around you because you have these big Soros-linked organizations like Lilly Endowment getting involved in handing money to Christian organizations to try to subvert us from within. That's exactly what's going on. They don't care about our post-pandemic look. That's not their interest. I don't believe that for a minute. They want to subvert us. And if we don't stand on the word of God and understand that the way churches are planted and spread and the way that we get revival is from the word of the Lord being preached and spreading, as it says so many times in the book of Acts, then we are gonna completely lose our bearings. And we need to be aware of all of this because it's going on all around us. God help us, Lord save your church. Thanks for being with us. We gotta go. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today.